Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, featuring 2nd Edition AD&D Players and DMs Option Books. In this marathon series, we are taking a close look at a set of special books that are often considered D&D 2.5. On the 11th Day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me High Level Campaigns Part 2. So, I, I hear in the distance the sound of 11 pipers piping, and what are these mad pipers piping to us, my dear friend Sam? These mad pipers are piping to us. They were talking to us about adventures, and we went through already uh, in the last episode, and we talked about types of adventures and organization of adventures, and and basically ended uh, by saying that the first half of Chapter 2 is really about how to plan a campaign. It's really a how-to-prep chapter. It really is, and that's that's a very cool thing. Um, it has a lot of guidelines that wind up being sort of on one level obvious, and then on another level, I think even experienced gyms wind up needing to be reminded of them. Um, I, see, I feel like there's this there's this learning loop, right, where um, you're taught a basic principle such as to pick one from here, um, creating multiple threats. And you you lean into it and you explore it as it, with your understanding as a newcomer to game running. And then you kind of go off and explore what that means on your own and you try to uh, build it into your style. And then time passes and you come back to the text again and you discover, well, okay, I did that for a while. And then I sort of got distracted or my, my prep time got really curtailed by, you know, stupid stuff like life. Um, and so I stopped doing that. Well, that'd be a good thing to, you know, work back into my jamming style and make sure I'm doing because it was always the right principle and just uh, I'm balancing so many basics and trying to do them well that they form something really complex to, to become worthwhile. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what you're really getting at is the idea of, you know, we're in the first oh, 50 or so pages of this book and the first 50 or so pages of this book are a very, very good guide to how to think about DMing, how to think about what what the job of the DM is. And even if you if you disagree with some of the advice that's given, at least you can think about what's happening in the game and, and what what actually the goal that you're setting is and making sure that everybody is on the same page and having fun. And this is uh, just one of those aspects of the second chapter as well. Yeah. Uh, I think the list of types of encounters uh, has a lot of value just for reminding you to vary things up as much as possible. And if there's an encounter type, it's really easy to get into sort of your five room dungeon style of, um, uh, okay, a couple, three combats and interaction and a trap Mm -hmm. and we're good. And don't get me wrong. 
that model is is a beautiful classic for all the best reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You can finish it in about an evening in most cases, and everyone's going to have a good time. And it can absorb boundless levels of additional complexity uh, to rise above its model. I mean, when I talk about something being a formula, um, the show Leverage is a formula. Mm-hmm. It just it, it you can you can time the shifts in the show with incredible precision mm-hmm. if you just understand the formula they're working with. Right. That doesn't make it bad. It doesn't make it even repetitive. It means that they have to be creative in everything else. Right. Because their format isn't going to go anywhere. Um, so this is a reminder to th- that your even your simplest five room dungeon model can have a lot of uh, tweaks to the format. So the types of encounters they include are combat, deception. Um, deception is fairly involved. It is um, you know big betrayals, red herrings, that kind of thing. Um, a, a bait and switch of an encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it notes very clearly: don't do this all the time. <laughs> right. You, you need uh, you need a baseline normalcy for this to mean anything. Um, delay, dilemma, event, guardian, interaction, obstacle, puzzle, skirmish, surprise, and trap. Um, and I mean. That seems like a, a pretty good list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the fact that uh, combat isn't sort of left alone as the one you know, form of combat. It is a sort of midpoint combat. It, it is a, a default mode, but there are other modes that are different types of encounters. So uh, surprise and skirmish are meaningfully different because of their starting state. Right. Right. And, you know, and so is guardian because it's much more a fight that you can see is there and decide to trigger. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing that strikes me about this list and, and I said the same thing, I think about, about the, the maxims that we talked about in the first chapter is that I could write an entire blog post about all of these different things, each individual one, um, I mean, for sure, I have for sure blog right. posts yeah, about some for of sure. These. So have I. And, but I, I guess my point is, once again, here we're in the realm of, in a certain manner of thinking, this is timeless advice, right? Now there are right. some, Absolutely. you know, there there are some nitty gritty things they talk about in some of these different, you know, little uh, sections. But ultimately, it's really just trying to express to to a DM a game runner, you know, you can think of the game as small chunks of interactions and encounters. And there are multiple different types. It's not just combat. It's not just wilderness exploration. It's not just, you know, whatever. You can also break it into smaller bits, like what's the dilemma or what event did the characters notice and what's the fallout from that? Or, you know, what's the what's the uh, what's what thing are they trying to guard like those sorts of things they could all have a combat component 
but that doesn't mean that the combat yep. has to be front center the very first thing that everybody's doing. Uh, the the text also puts a you know, four high level characters spin on its mm-hmm. advice that I do think uh, enriches the usefulness of the the text here because. Uh, I mean, the book has its context, mm-hmm. and that context is high-level characters. Sure. Uh, but making sure you remember that the usefulness of different kinds of encounters shifts over the course of a campaign mm-hmm. is is great. It's great. Uh, for example, a moral dilemma will often mean more at higher levels or later in a campaign because players have more context right. for – all the different things that are at stake with their decision. And so, I mean, the, the agony of that choice that is the, the great thing about a dilemma pays off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also uh, on the other side of that, the trap encounter, you know, it, it points yep. out that, um, you know, when you design a trap for a higher level, higher level character, well, if you just design a trap that inflicts damage, you're not really doing anything different than what combat does. And that's not the point of this encounter necessarily. So instead of just dealing 30 points of damage, which by the way, to an 18th level fighter is negligible or easily healed, um, try to do something different, you know, Uh, have a different effect, have some kind of hindrance, have something that's more meaningful as the consequence of setting off that trap. And you know yep. that's a di- very different uh, piece of advice that you might give of you know trap for first, second, or third level characters, where thirty points of damage right. would be deadly. And it, <laughs> and it, it makes me think about third edition, where uh, the the trap creation rules really consciously phased out around uh, challenge rating ten mm-hmm. traps. They they just kind of said. Um, these aren't useful anymore. This is probably not going to be useful, useful part of right. play anymore because the PCs have so many uh, low cost tools for uh, circumventing traps that we're not sure that this is a good use of your, your time or our page space. Right. So, I mean, you can have sort of hilariously high damage totals, but, that's outside the scope of what we think of traps as being. Right. Me- meanwhile, cut to uh, Grimtooth traps, which had eight or nine R- versions right. and then had ultimate versions and all kinds of whatnot. And in fact, had a recent Kickstarter. When I say recent, I mean within the past five years. So, you know, <laughs> traps are popular. Traps nice. are popular for a reason. Um, and while the design, yeah, for while sure. the design in third edition might have been you know, trying to be cognizant of the fact that it's not really fun anymore at 10th or 12th or 15th level to just avoid a trap that would do 50 points of damage. Um, This text is pointing out, even back in second edition, that you can use traps for different things. You don't have to just deal damage. So, eh. Right. And, And I think that there's no character level where there isn't some real hunger among a substantial portion of the players for a, you know, James Bond or Indiana Jones style, uh, almost Rube Goldberg level death trap, just a good solid death trap that there's, they have to, you know, thread the eye of a needle to escape because 
it's such a sure thing to kill them. But of course, uh, do you expect us to talk? No PCs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I expect you to <laughs> die. <laughs> um, so moving on from that, we get to linking mm-hmm. adventures, which um, this is is very much about turning adventures into right. Well, a that's what I was going to say. This is this is the campaign part of the prep versus the session part of the prep. Um, and I like that they're talking about uh, both. Uh, we have a couple of different subheaders here: chained adventures. Ripples in a pond, um, where adventures are responses to things that you've done. They're, they're not necessarily further investigations on the same line or whatever. They are, well, you did a thing. The world mm-hmm. responded. Now it's your turn to respond right. again. Right. Kind of thing. And, and that's, uh, I think, very much in keeping with the, the sort of fronts system that Dungeon World mm-hmm. lays out that I think is such a useful way to think about uh, arc plotting. Yeah, that that framing, the framing of of the fronts, is amazing. It's an amazing tool. Um, it's it's a, yeah. just a really useful phrasing for for how to think about all this stuff. You have interlocking adventures. I, I first learned about it in, in actual Apocalypse World before Dungeon World came out, and and the 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 clock, the the way that they use. You know, basically the the clock of you know here's here's something that got triggered now, and you know after a certain amount of time or a certain number of events occur, this is going to come to bear. Like the consequences of this might be delayed, but you can actually track that in the game in a meaningful way because you're using that front uh, sort of setup. So anyway, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but this is touching on that and basically saying it using different words. Yep. So we talk about interlocking adventures, which, um, which are a little bit, uh, side questy. Um, the party seeks out a wizard to get more information about the weapon before they learn anything. However, they must solve the mystery of the burglary, uh, the crime might be related to the overall plot, or it might be incidental. So, so a little bit side questy, mm-hmm. but there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, uh, and then that that's part of their other adventure suggestions here. You have uh, multi-layered adventures, um, and uh, which is basically, but basically, you every time you complete a quest or a task, you now have learned more information that brings you deeper into the right. story, the main plot. So less side quests. And, right. And, and this model I've seen best explained as the conspiramid in uh, Knights Black Agents, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, where sort of you start off fighting, you know, the, the low level, probably human goons with guns, of the great vampire conspiracy and you just work your way you know, upward and upward in the pyramid of the conspiracy right. conspiramid uh, <laughs> until you are fighting the actual you know vampire masters of the whole deal, right. which is just great. Right. Then we have revisited adventures and this is one that I super love, I super, super love. And I think it doesn't see nearly enough, um, use and exploration in official content, um, which is where you revisit a location that you hadn't adventure in before, but things have changed there. 
but that's awesome because now you have the context of knowing the place and the fact that it changed means something to you and the things that didn't change mean something to you. Mm -hmm. That's so good. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah. Yep. Uh, So next we move into planning combats, which I mean, yes, this is more great advice that um, needs to get talked about more. Like I don't want to sound like a broken record, but folks, like this is, this is good um, intermediate to masterclass Mm -hmm. stuff. And we don't talk about well, it enough. it's not just okay. Determine how you know the CR, and then you know figure out if it's going to kill your party. Like it's not, it's not that sort of advice. It's, it's about okay. Yes, look at the attack power of whatever the foe is, but then also look at mobility. Then also look at how everything is organized in terms of the encounter itself. You know, where is everyone at? Uh, what opportunities do people have? Different different creatures in the in the encounter have to change things, you know, where is the commander where, you know, what's going on? How, how does everything change through the course of the battle? What kind of information does the party already have? What kind of information does, does the, do the foes have the opposite side have, and then talk about terrain. I mean, this is this once again, I keep saying, I'm going to sound like a broken record too. This is stuff where I could take any one of these sections and write a longer extrapolated, you know, blog post about uh, bringing this into the fifth edition. I mean, this is just, it's just general good advice. And even if you don't, once again, even if you don't necessarily agree with the specific advice, it at least is making you think about, well, how would I do that in the current system? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it also covers terrain. And I mean, I don't think they're going to go into it nearly as much here as I'd like to see, mm-hmm. but um, I'll tell you what terrain powers in fourth edition were so hot. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was such a good <laughs> introduction to the game mm-hmm. when, when the, they really started leaning into uh, closely designing encounter areas with interesting ways to engage with the terrain and fun, horrible things you could do to, you know, your opponents. Right. Well, and if you think about that, that's exactly why this section's in the book in second edition, because remember what's happening. What's happening is these, all these books that we just spent 10 other podcasts episodes talking about, were trying to get the, the players of the game and the, and the runners of the games thinking about tactical placement and how to use powers and and feats, although they weren't called feats, and all those things to the highest efficiency and ability, and how to use the combat encounter and the game itself, and think of it in a new way, at that time a new way. By the time you get to fourth edition, and because in third edition it was basically assumed you're going to be using a map and minis. By the time you get to fourth edition, it's not even assumed. It's just stated. Of course, I think third edition actually states it right in there. But anyway, so they're right there saying, here's what you're using. But fourth edition was designed with the idea that you can have a combat encounter that is a centerpiece encounter. And so it completely makes sense in the evolution of what's happening there to then think about, okay, let's talk about terrain powers. I mean, I agree with you. I loved those. That was a fantastic addition to that game. I know some people didn't like them, actually, but that's, you know, 
that's a question for fourth edition episode. <laughs> that's strange and unthinkable to me. I mean, I've I've been you know working on very very slowly working on how I can support that well in fifth mm-hmm. edition because yeah, like engage with the terrain, right. make the make every detail of the scene your own. Right. Like that, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um. So, so then, uh, then we get into a whole new section that is going to go on for just pages and pages and pages. And it, it's a complicated topic, and it needs the space that it gets. But I, I don't feel nearly as much obligation to cover it in detail. So, so it's world design. It's imagining your characters are going to you know, go hopping from world to world in a let's call it maybe Star Trek kind mm-hmm. of way. Um, <laughs> and they're going to you know, engage with the ways that these worlds are different and the way these worlds are different might really, really mess them up. Mm-hmm. Um, some days uh, it might just not pay to be a wizard in this party. Um well, so, so I, I don't. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to. I want to say a couple of things. The first thing is that it talks about how each world that you could possibly produce has four different aspects that define part of its uniqueness. And the first aspect is the chronological aspect. And this this section has this. It's so weird. It has. I mean, it's but it's understandable. But it's weird. It has this this chronological table where where it could you could create a world that has time flow at a different speed a different rate than the base campaign world like whatever the home world that the that the characters came from so for example sure it's it's the Feywild right it's so you could have a local time of one week in the world that you're now in is actually a month in your regular campaign or one week here is a hundred years in your regular campaign. And it actually goes quite a bit into describing that and how you can make that happen. Uh, Then there's the magical aspect, right? So how does spellcasting work? Is there any uh, changes to it, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes on for that for several pages um, because it addresses psionics and magic items and all that. Then it has the technological aspect. So what is the technology of the new place that you have brought the characters to? And then the last one is the ecological aspect. The ecological aspect is talking about, you know, well, what what are the conditions on the surface of this planet? And, uh, you know, what's what's going on and what kind of adventures are you going to to put in there? Um, and all that's all well and good. Um, so what I was saying was uh, the ecological aspect is about what is the surface of this world actually like? What does it have in it? Does it have plants? Is it barren? You know, things like that. They also mention right at the end of that, after those four items, quirks that you could have. Um different additional properties that make them unique. The idea here is make a new planet unique. There's no reason to make your party travel to a new planet, an entirely different plane, if it's not going to be any different. If it's just going to be the same, just leave them where they are. Yep, absolutely. And then the book moves on, chapter two moves on to talking about monsters. 
Yeah, I, I just I can't believe how much they're covering and calling it one chapter. Uh, this is yeah, this is, this is a lot of totally different stuff just all over the place. And like, so so what I love about this is uh, okay, so altering monsters the easy way, good. That that's very familiar. Like this section still essentially works for five e. Uh, almost nothing really needs changing other than the fact that the math is literally rigged differently, but that's not important. Just you can change the numbers. It's okay. Is uh, fine. Then we get to ability scores for monsters. Here we go. There we go. This, this is a reminder that third ed is coming and somebody knows it. Yeah. Uh, Not, not literally in 95, but yeah. 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 In, in a practical sense, mm-hmm. this is going to be a major building block of third edition. So this is talking about how to uh, to to generate uh, the other five ability scores for monsters, since intelligence is the only one that is given for every monster. Uh, and Oh, actually, no. They they talk about how to generate monster intelligence scores too. My mistake. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, all of them. They do all of them, not just intelligence. Yeah, yeah. We get we get you know how to generate all six monster ability scores because, in all fairness, you could come up with a situation where you need them, especially if they're teamed up with a party for some reason. It becomes much more important and useful, uh, and. Then one that I really love that I, it just really speaks to the sort of um, classical mythology part of my soul. Legendary monster section. I just love this. Um, you know, it, in principle, any monster could be a, you know, a higher and more refined, let's say, nightmare version of itself. Like, uh, like I don't think I'm really going too far to say this has a little bit of a um, an action RPG like Diablo uh, feel to it um, because there are um, five higher ranks that any monster could be assigned: uh, Lesser Scion, Scion, Elder, Great Elder, and Paragon. And I mean, these are each just incredibly mm-hmm. big boosts to those monsters. Uh, it doesn't matter like what they are; they're getting boosted in the stratosphere um, because uh, it starts at a four-point improvement to AC and ends on a twelve-point improvement to AC. And in second edition, that is going from you know. This fight is fine too. Well, um, sure we're high level, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> we're we're hosed, right? right? We're, we're just hosed. Um, and similar increases to um, hit, hit dice. dice. Yeah, plus twenty five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bye bye now. Right. Bye bye. Yeah. Um, but with monster thicko increase rates, mm-hmm. yeah, get out of here. Right. Um, and so that's is great stuff. Um, it's it's handled about as simply as they can manage, but in fairness, uh, second edition monsters are simpler in the main than um, 
than third ed monsters and certainly the fourth ed monsters. Let, let's also talk about this from the aspect of, you know, the monster manual and the dungeon master's guide in second edition didn't really tell you how to create monsters. Uh, it no. It didn't tell you how to do any of that. So this is actually the first time that they're sort of handing over this packet of information and saying, hey, you know what? As a DM, you actually can now be privy to the same things that, that we look at when we're designing monsters, the official monsters for this game that everybody's playing. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, you know, in the later editions, they sort of give that it's sort of part and parcel of what's in the DMG or what's in the monster manual or what's in different supplemental books. It's sort of just expected that you'll eventually get that information if you don't get it in the core three, uh, because they, it's just known that people are going to want to fiddle with numbers and with creatures and make their new thing. Um, but back then it wasn't really, it wasn't that they didn't know people were doing that. It's just that, well, if you're doing that, you're on your own and you can figure it out. If you're that good, you got to figure it out yourself. Yep. We're not going to give you help, yep. but here it is the, here's the help. Here's this little packet of information, a few pages, several pages, you know, and it has all this information that, that you can see that for some people it wasn't as easy as just looking at a table or making their own table or studying the monsters enough to be able to create their own table and make things make sense. So, you know, you can imagine that some of the creatures that people were creating were just out, out there in terms of power and balance and what they could actually do. And, you know, what, what the, what the, actual statistics and all that were surrounding that creature. I, I mean, Sam, uh, I read some of the monster, uh, monster, uh, Monsters Compendium appendices. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> right. Uh, but I'm just saying, yeah. right? I'm just saying that this is just like, remember, you and I talked about how in, in this edition, it's the first edition where they really said, hey, look, you're allowed to know as a player all this information. Right, all this information about what 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 is going on. Because remember, in first edition, the combat tables weren't even in the player's handbook; they were in the DMG. <laughs> if all you had was the player's handbook, you couldn't even know what those combat tables were, because that wasn't information for the player; that was only for the DM. And it was a similar thing, though, toward the DM for creature creation. Like it wasn't really given. Oh, here's how you can create a monster that would seem really professionally designed and official like it would be able to compare and compete with official creatures no no you're not allowed to know that but here now with this book in 1995 here you can know that here's this parcel of information that you can use and you can sort of get a peek behind the curtain and see here's what we think about here are the things that we're doing as we're creating these official products yep. um and i mean after the initial simplicity of AC modification and hit dice, you then get into mm -hmm. the real nitty gritty stuff, like you're saying, uh, changing damage, wounding effects, disease, fear effects, crush attacks, breath weapons, mm -hmm. breath weapon sizes, and yeah, it, it, it goes <laughs> to town. It, they pull out all the stops. It's great. Right. Like if you have players who are getting big for their britches and I think they're big and bad, mm -hmm. well. I guess it can be nightmare mode time. Let's go. 
right? It talks about invulnerabilities, regeneration rates, you know, I mean, it, it, it goes into it. And then it gives you a sample creature, the Elder Gorgon, <laughs> which is, fine. you know, it's totally fine. I don't, you know, yeah. it's fine. I don't want to fight it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That uh, four times per day, the Elder Gorgon can breathe a cone of petrification 85 feet long, five foot in diameter at the base, and 30 foot in diameter at the far end. All creatures within the area of effect are turned to stone unless they make successful saving throw versus petrification at minus five. Screw you, pig. Right. <laughs> and you, you know those saving throws weren't that easy to make in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, which bring also note note that uh, terminology S A special attack. Huh? Where are we going to see that kind of thing later? It's anyway, come up. It's come up. <laughs> uh, that brings us to chapter three: yep. spells and magical items. So this is a, an interesting chapter in that it is mostly a very first ed unearthed arcana style. Um, Expansion on just how to adjudicate tons and tons of spells, just just heap, yeah. heaps of spells, and this goes on for many pages. And uh, don't get me wrong, useful content if if that's what you need. Mm-hmm. Like giving you a single book where rulings are, are are gathered when there's no internet to go look up a sage mm-hmm. advice column. Right. Or I mean, there's an internet. Right. It's right. it's ninety five, not seventy four. But yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. But you know yeah. what I mean. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a real nice thing to have. It's a real nice thing to have. Um, yeah, it's nice if you're. But the thing is, here here is now probably the first real section of the book where it might not translate so well. Because it's really talking about the second edition version. Oh yeah, this, this has almost nothing to to offer a specifically fifth right. edition audience, but right, right. it's indispensable so, at the time. But that's my point, right? So, but we're but we're on page sixty eight when we start this chapter. So the first sixty seven pages of this book are applicable. Maybe with the exception of the ta- specific tables in the monster creation section, but but the the text that's in there that talks about you know how to know when to use certain things, all of that in the first sixty seven pages is like chef's kiss. Yep. Like let's just send this forward twenty years and it's still applicable. That's amazing. Yep. At, at worst, you have to tweak some numbers, guys. It's fun. Right. 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 Whereas this first section of spells and magic, where we're talking about the real adjudication of these spells, yes, you're right. Absolutely awesome to have at the table when playing this edition when this book came out. But uh, pushing it forward twenty years, it you know, it's just not applicable for the most part. I mean, a lot of these spells don't exist. So yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Good game. Um, and then we get uh, a real just revisit of. Um, uh, some elements of spells and magic mm-hmm. with research uh, magical items, yep. uh, getting a lot of sort of deep dive research times and costs for how to make the, the attuned rods you need to plane shift. Right. That's right. like, uh, I don't believe the, the player's handbook or the DMG have anything to say about all of that. And this is, 
Perfectly reasonable. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Once again, probably or maybe not applicable to, you know, mo- most <laughs> most of this uh, is not, a- uh, not applicable. Actually, I'm going to say that planar travel uh, table. That little plate. Yes. The planar travel section, you like could, three paragraphs. Yeah you, could, yeah. you could just photocopy that, bring it to fifth edition and call it a day. Yeah. That, I'll give you that, that one. You don't. You don't need to change a single number. But uh, but the rest of that chapter, yeah. I mean, the, the rest of that is not. Yeah, yeah. The rest of the chapter, no, no hope. Um, there's there's not going to be anything of uh, of use for you in all these magic items because any changes they needed to make here, any clarifications, mm-hmm. they just right. brought into third edition. So, in looking at this as a uh, foundational text for third. Uh, sure, yeah, this is indispensable. Sure. Uh, th- this is going to have a huge, huge effect on right. what makes it into third and what doesn't. I'm, I'm sure you could go through here and see the things that required the most uh, <laughs> delicate and thorny um, touch up and see either, well, they simplified the crap out of this or. Well, let's see. Wish gets a page on its own. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a witch. No, no, I, know. I don't know what to tell you. But, but in fairness, that's right. going to have a lot to do with how the capabilities mm-hmm. of Wish get refined in right. both sure. third and fifth, right? And and we have seen it change a lot. Like if we did a, a deep text dive into Wish, yeah. we'd have stuff to say. I mean, that's. That's a little nitpicky, even mm-hmm. by our legendary standards. <laughs> but th- it's not that there is content there. It's just it'd be really nice to have one of the designers on hand to help provide more context to you know every little bit of phrasing. Um, so then we get chapter four. I think we're ready to move to chapter four, creating magic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's anything else we need to say about chapter three and, and creating magic items is kind of here to say a lot of the stuff that spells magic already said it, it, it is, mm-hmm. but um, uh, I mean, this is very much going to be a, a more involved and complicated form of the kind of magic item creation that we see in third ed. Um, because it involves materials and processes. And I think we talked about uh, different rarities of materials and processes in mm-hmm. Spells and Magic. Um, and um, then all of the... This is this chapter's sort of a shortened up yeah. version of that, and it specifically talks about a, a few very specific elements. For example, Holy Water gets an enormous section um, because, you know, how much do you make what's its potency, things like that. Um, and, and that sort of thing needs to be addressed maybe, right? Like it's, you know. Oh, right. Uh, I, I just remembered that the, the whole huge, like why you don't go around creating lots of magic items in second mm-hmm. that they get rid of in third. It's one little spell called permanency. Right. <laughs> right. And it's just such a, such a kick in the pants mm-hmm. to, have to cast permanency because I, I think it drains your con. Yeah, I think I think like, so. <laughs> cool. Why? <Yeah>. No. <laughs> 
Um, but I, I'm not sure, I guess, we need to talk about Chapter 4 all that much either, because I think we already addressed almost everything uh, when we talked about it from from the other book. Right. And, I mean, there's a... a I, I appreciate that there's a huge, like, um, descriptive example here. Mm-hmm. And it does... Right. It does rather go Yeah, yeah on. it does. Huh. But if you're not a designer by nature or you're brand new at this at the time, that ex- this example is actually one of the better examples of how are they actually doing something. So yep. it's, it's not bad. I don't mind the enormous example. It's okay. But that brings us to Chapter 5. Let's save Chapter 5 until uh, yeah, the next sure. episode. That's that's going to end it for us today, and that's going to uh, bring our mad piping to a close. Um, it's not long now until we'll hear the drummers drumming, all all twelve of them, along with I, I'm never really sure about this. I think eleven more yes. pipers yeah. piping and ten more lords yeah. a leaping. That's that's a lot of lords, guys. I mean, t- anyway, um, so. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to uh, this episode of uh, Edition Wars. Uh, I've been Brenda Stoddard, and with me, as always, is uh, my friend and co-host, Sam Dillon. Uh, Sam, where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me online at rpgmusings.com or on Twitter at DM Samuel or on Twitch on the Don't Split the Podcast Network that is run by a friend of the show, James Interqueso. And uh, he very generously allows me to run my game that happens every other Sunday night on his network. And that's called D&D Brief. So please uh, take a look if you're interested. And I am on uh twitter at brenda stoddard i uh, write my own blog uh, at www.brandastoddard.com i also write for tribality.com and i have a patreon that is brenda stoddard and that will end it for tonight thanks everyone thank you look mate three generations ago my ancestors forged the great blade skull splitter with it They won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. That one doesn't even make sense because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies, Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends.